going to great. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you today. So last week, we were looking at the big story and the small story. Thanks to the gents for putting the whiteboard up there. Thank you very much. Uh, the iPad refused to charge this morning. I don't quite know what's going on with it, but you know these things. They have a mind of their own. So we've got the whiteboard, which is, uh, I think, kind of a bit of a retro look for us today. So last week, we were looking at the big story and the small story, the big story of God, which, of course, has two volumes. The first volume is completed with Jesus crying, it is finished, and dying on the cross. The second volume begins with him coming alive, being raised from the dead, and greeting first Mary Magdalene, and then all of the other disciples. This second volume, the volume of the resurrected life, is a volume in which we play our part because we're part of the story. And the mentor to our journey is the Holy Spirit who guides us and helps us to see how Jesus, the central character of volume one, continues to be the central character of volume two. Well, as we continue to explore this, this big idea, this big picture, we're going to continue with our study of the Acts of the Apostles. And we're going to look at Acts 13 and verse 44, which continues the journey with Paul and Barnabas through the region of Galatia in the city of Pisidian Antioch. So this is the continuation of the story, Acts chapter 13, verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it, and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And, when, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. The disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. A great way to conclude a story, a great way to conclude a chapter in this volume of God's great story. And when we look at this story, there are key things that emerge from it. The first is this issue of jealousy. Now, anyone who has inhabited the world for, I don't know, a nanosecond has encountered jealousy. Either jealousy that rises in your own heart or jealousy that somehow is revealed to you by the behavior of another directed towards you. And what's happened, of course, with this normal human attribute, this, this normal human behavior is that it has been... Excuse me, I, was, I had a scratch just underneath my microphone. I didn't mean to do that. It's been kind of supercharged by the contemporary medium of the internet. TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, and yes, for those of you over 40, Facebook. Gives you the opportunity to see what people are jealous about. 
gives you the opportunity to find out what people are jealous about about you and gives you the opportunity to join with the baying throng seeking the blood of others. What a joy-filled life that must be. No wonder so many of us try to keep ourselves clear of such toxic influences. What do we do about jealousy? Let's think about it. Because jealousy is a hugely important subject for this story. We, if we're going to understand this story, we're going to have to understand the nature and the kind of granular details of jealousy. Why, why is jealousy so important to this particular story? And, and why was it that the Holy Spirit saw fit to inspire Luke in writing these words to bring it to our attention? It can only be for our benefit. And so it's important that we listen to the Holy Spirit. This is his book. This is what he inspired through Luke to have written. And so it's important that we attend to what it is that he says. So how does it all work? Well, it works in the same way that just about all other human behavior works. It operates in the same way that all human methods of learning work. It operates in the mechanisms of imitation. Now, we've talked about this before, where we've looked at the nature of discipleship, the nature of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to imitate his life. And we recognize that imitating his life is for us, because Jesus is not physically present, Imitating his life is imitating what we see of his life in the life of others. And so imitation is at the very core of our discipleship to Jesus. And imitation is all about, at the very beginning, attraction. Attraction means that there's something compelling there's something significant, there's something important about the one that we see. Now we know, and I've mentioned this before, that neuroscientists have, have looked at the behavior of newborn children and they've identified that children are already, with their muscular reflexes, are already at the age of 45 minutes old, seeking to imitate the facial expressions of their parents. It's incredible. Human beings, from, from our very beginning, we are hardwired for imitation. We're hardwired to become like the people around us because that's how we learn. I mean, one of the things that, that scientists have, have baffled over for, for generations is how do children who are not taught how to speak the language of their parents, learn it so well. When, as an adult, if you try to learn a language, it really takes a lot of effort. But they seem to do it without even thinking about it. How do they do it? Well, they do it through the process of imitation. And imitation is built upon attraction. There's nothing wrong with attraction. It's not one of these things that we need to, we need to kind of put into the, into, the, into the side or into the shadows. Attraction is a normal human behavior that enables us to learn from another person. And it leads to imitation. Now, this is where it can all go wrong. You're watching a TikTok video and you're in the wormhole and you didn't realize that you've been there for four hours watching people do dance routines with their children. And you're, you're like, what am I doing? And you, you step back for a moment and you go, I don't, I don't know, maybe I could do that. So you find a mirror. And you think, okay, if I could get the music right, maybe, 
maybe, maybe, maybe I could, maybe, maybe how did they do that again? And then you think, oh, I, can't, I, can't, I can't do that. I can't do it. Maybe, maybe you watch tennis and you think, I could do that. Or, or maybe you watch golf and you think, it's not that complicated, it's just a little white ball, hit it down there. What's the problem? Maybe, maybe you watch Olympic athletes and you think, I don't know, I think I could probably balance on a four-inch bar and do a backflip. What do you think, Sal? So, what do you do at that point? Well, just say, just say you realize you can't do it. Just say you can't do it. Well, often the human response is to, is to celebrate the person who obviously has gifts unlike your own. And you say, wow, that's amazing. Chad on the drums this morning, Chris on the guitar, Elise on the vocals. Can't do that. But you celebrate the fact that they can. And it's great. You're not able to imitate it, but you are able to affirm it. Now, what about if you're seeing somebody who you feel some kind of connection to? They don't have to be a person that you know. They could be a person that you see on TV or even a character in a book that's so well described that you feel that you, that you can get a hold of who they are. And you think, you think to yourself, you know, I can. I think I can do that. The disciples uh, were with Jesus during his ministry and um, he first sent out the 12 who had had a very close relationship with Jesus. He sent them out to do the things that he'd been doing. He said, tell, tell the people that the kingdom of God is coming. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. And off the 12 went. And then in the next chapter of Luke's gospel, you remember this, we see Jesus sending out 72 other disciples. There's no, there's no name attached to any of them. They're not like Peter and James and John. They're not familiar names within the biblical narrative. They're just 72 other disciples. And off they go. And Jesus says, tell the people that the kingdom of God is coming. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. And they come back with joy. Because the thing that Jesus said they could do, they found out they could actually do it. And when Jesus said to them, this is what I want you to do, something inside of them said, do you know, if Jesus says, maybe I can. And so the imitation leads to an adoption of behavior, an adoption of behavior that leads to personal transformation. Personal transformation. I remember the first time that I realized that Jesus actually wanted all disciples to pray for and heal the sick. When I was reading the Great Commission, go therefore into all the world and make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, my assumption was that the Great Commission finished at that point and that the, the Gospel of Matthew finished. 
But actually there was another verse that for some reason either I'd never heard before or nobody had ever shared with me. The next verse said, teaching them, the new disciples, to do everything I taught you to do. And he taught the first disciples to heal the sick. So the first disciples taught the next generation of disciples to heal the sick, who taught the next generation of disciples to heal the sick. And I thought, well, if that was the original intention of Jesus, maybe that's the original intention for me. And if that's the intention for me, then maybe I can. And so I stepped into that imitation process of working out what it was that Jesus actually did. How did he actually train his first disciples? And in doing that, I found myself adopting the behavior of the first disciples as best I could, the behavior of Jesus as best I could, and it led to personal transformation. So, imitation and attraction can lead to celebration and affirmation of people who can do things that I can't, or it can lead to adoption of what it is that other people do and transformation of my personal life. So it's affirmation or transformation so far, yeah? Turn to your neighbor and say, it's affirmation or transformation so far, go ahead. So, what about these guys that were with Paul and Barnabas? Paul and Barnabas had preached a sermon in the synagogue on one Sabbath, on one Saturday. All of the people listened very carefully, and many of them were really compelled by what it was that Paul shared. So compelled that they had conversations throughout that day and through the rest of the week. And those conversations obviously spilled over into their families and friends, into their households, into their workplaces. So that when the next Sabbath came and the synagogue was near to the main marketplace of Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. It seemed as though the whole city had come to listen to Paul and what it was that he was going to say. And when the leaders of the synagogue, the religious leaders of that congregation, saw that the whole city had gathered, they became jealous. And what was at the heart of that? Because quite clearly, in their jealousy, they decided that even though they found Paul and his words attractive, and like everyone else, wanted to imitate his faith that the Messiah had come, something happened that meant that they said, not I can't or I can, but I won't. And that I won't meant that those religious leaders and those who followed them offered rejection and persecution. What's it all about? What what creates the context for this rejection and persecution? What creates the context of the cancel culture? What creates the context of a world in which young, young people are so beset by the fear of others' rejection? that they live for the next like. What is that? What is it that's, that's being exposed here? This is not something that's just appeared. 
This is something that's being exposed, that's been part of the human condition for a long time. And, and yes, it may well be inflated, it may well be supercharged, it may well be put into hyperdrive because of the nature of the way in which media and communication take place now. But this is something that's in the heart of human beings. And what is it? Well, to understand that, we need to go back and understand what's going on here in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch. And to do that, we, we need to kind of get to feel the texture of the life of the people who opposed Paul and Barnabas. Just a few months later, Paul and Barnabas will have returned to their home, not Pisidian Antioch, but Syrian Antioch, They'll go back to their other city of Antioch and, and there they'll hear terrible news. And the terrible news is this, that, that certain people from Jerusalem who believed that Paul and Barnabas were doing a wrong thing, perhaps they heard along the grapevine from the people that opposed Paul and Barnabas and they sent teachers to the new communities that Paul and Barnabas had established and they told the followers of Jesus that if as a Gentile you want to be a true follower of Jesus, you have to become a Jew. And so the men have to be circumcised and all of the families, young and old, will have to follow the ceremonial law of Moses. And when Paul heard this, he was devastated. He sends the first letter of his New Testament writing, the, the letter to the Galatians. And unlike all of his other letters that start with a kind of brief recognition of all of the good things that, that the people who are receiving his letter have done, instead of all of that, where he's waxing eloquent about all of the benefits of knowing them as friends and as fellow followers of Jesus, he just says, you foolish, foolish people, what have you done? Who's bewitched you? This is crazy. You started out in freedom, and now you've continued and gone into bondage. You started in grace and faith, and now you've gone back to law. And he asks this big question. At the beginning of chapter 3, he says, Did you receive the Spirit by obeying the law of God? Did you receive the Spirit by obeying the law of God? Or did you receive the Spirit of God by believing what you heard? It's faith in Jesus that changes everything. It's faith in Him that opens your heart to receive the infilling of God himself, his spirit living within you. It's not obedience to the standards of religion. You'll never get anywhere with that, says Paul. And then he says this, and this is shocking. In Galatians chapter 3, he, he, he says these really quite stark words that unless you read them carefully you you really wouldn't believe it. it says this in verse 10 of of Galatians chapter 3 all who rely on observing the law are under a curse if you try to be religious you're actually cursed. This is, this is why it's so important to Paul. The word cursed is an incredibly strong word in the Bible. It's a word that, that echoes with the heartbreak of God when Adam and Eve walk away from him. And he says, the consequences of your action of walking away from me mean that the ground on which you walk is cursed. And you'll only be able to feed your family with the sweat of your brow 
and the labor of your life. And to the serpent who tempted them, he says, cursed are you. Being cursed means being separated from the life of God. And you say, wait, 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 wait. Let me just think about this. Wait, wait. You mean to tell me that being religious separates me from God? Of course it does. You mean, you mean doing the things that my parents told me to do and doing those religiously, that separates me from God? If you think that that's what being a Christian is, yeah, it does separate you from God. See, when Paul uses the word law here, he's using legal framework. If you operate in a legal framework where you think that you have to do certain things to gain the favor of God, if you have to do certain things to avoid the punishment of God, if you have to do certain things to stay in the good books with God, then you function in law. It may not be Jewish law, it could be Protestant law or Catholic law or Pentecostal law or whatever law. It's still law. And if you live under law, you're cursed, says Paul. Are you kidding me? No wonder it's so important to him. So the very things that I'm doing to try to connect with God are actually separating me. Why is that? Because all the time that you focus on yourself and believe that by your own energy you can turn the heart of God towards you, you'll always fail because you'll always focus on yourself. You'll always rest in your own strength. You'll always struggle to achieve God's affirmation by your good behavior. And of course, that's foolish. It never happens that way. And I know the way that you've been raised. And I know what it is that you've heard. And I know what it is that you've read. And I know the websites that you visit. And I understand the podcasts that you listen to. And the radio shows that have infected your heart and mind that cause you to think that by certain behavior you can please God. But I'm telling you now, the Bible says that nothing that you do in your own strength can please God. It will get you to focus on yourself. And when you focus on yourself, you're one step further away from God. This is why it's so important to Paul. And what are the net effects of people who have put all of their effort into their religious observance? The net effect is massive levels of insecurity. Of course there is. If you're not connecting with God, even if you say that you're close to him, even if you think that by your behavior you're pleasing him, inside your heart there's always this little narrative that says, but it's not true, is it? You don't feel it. You don't experience it. You're not secure. It's not the devil. It's your conscience. It's the inner voice speaking. And that insecurity will eat away at you. And it'll cause you to do all kinds of different things. It'll cause you, out of your insecurity, to be jealous of someone who seems to be close to God. Instead of, instead of finding out how they're close to God or why they're close to God, you, you feel offended. 
You're envious of, of their relationship to God and, you, and you, feel, you feel like, well, I mean, who do they think they are? I'm a good person. They've never said anything about you. They've never even thought about you. But you're offended by them. This insecurity rises up and you say, I, mean, I bet they're talking about me right now. I bet, I bet they've got all kinds of things that they want to say about me. I know. Because they're just probably like me. And the insecurity will wear away at you like a toxic acid in your soul. And then one day, maybe just every so often, you'll do something really well. You know, you, you have a perfect quiet time. You do it just the way that it says in the book. You have 10 minutes of reading, then five minutes of thinking, and then 10 minutes of praying, and then you feel this peaceful thing, and the sun rises, and the birds sing, and the coffee smells, and you think, yeah, I'm awesome. And so, just every so often, the insecurity flips and it becomes pride. You lift your head and you feel completely justified in looking down on the rest of the world because obviously they're not as good as you. And so these two fighting cats in the bag of your heart, insecurity and pride, will look to gain the upper hand every day. And neither one of them will help you. Neither one of them will, will secure you any sense of security in your relationship with God. Why? Because God gives you a relationship. You don't earn it. And he gives you a relationship on the basis of another person who earned it for you. Yes, you're right. It has to be earned. But it's earned by someone else. The relationship with God is earned by Jesus. He earns it for you. He wins it for you. He lives the perfect life of obedience. He dies the death of separation that is the curse of a lost sinner. And even though he never sinned, he takes the approbation. He, he takes the condemnation. He allows the separation to be his and not ours. And when you have faith in him and what he did... then everything changes. This is the way that Paul puts it. Christ, this is verse 13 of Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. It's not me just saying this, you know. This is actually the Bible. Christ redeemed us from the curse of legal observance by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. These religious leaders lived daily with the fighting cats in their heart. Insecurity, often. Pride, occasionally. Insecurity and pride constantly struggling within them. And they look at what Paul does. He just preaches one sermon on one Sabbath and the whole city come out and they hate him for it. Of course they do, wouldn't you? I mean, who the heck does he think he is? I've been here my whole life. I've read the law of Moses every Sabbath and we've got a few of these Gentiles to kind of listen. And you turn up one week 
preach some half-baked sermon and the whole city turns out. What's that? And those struggling cats come to prominence in their jealousy, their hatred, and their abusive words and their persecution. There's another way, of course, for us. And the other way is to recognize that Jesus did it all and that we are equal in our need of that gift of grace. We're equal in our need to simply believe in that gift of grace and we're equal in the reception of the Holy Spirit who's given to each one who believes equally. You see, the thing that Paul was concerned about as these Gentile believers were listening to these toxic words of the, of the people who wanted them to become Jewish as well as followers of Jesus was that they would be separated and isolated and they would no longer believe that there is commonality and radical equality amongst the believers. They would think that somehow there's a hierarchy. There are different people closer to God on the basis of what they do. There's nobody in this building today who's closer to God on the basis of what they do. Nobody. Because it doesn't depend on us. Either God does it or it doesn't happen. So you may have missed prayer this week. You may have forgotten to read your Bible. God is not further away from you. He can't be. He lives inside of you if you're a believer. Now, can you feel further away? Of course. Can it, can it operate as if he's further? Of course. Is he actually further away? No, because it depends on him. It depends on the work of Jesus. It depends on his commitment to you. And his commitment is way more than yours and more important than yours. And so what happens in the heart of a believer who knows that it's all the gift of Jesus and knows that it's simply faith in that gift and the spirit living within you gives you equal standing status and access to God. What happens? You become secure. You don't look at other people as being higher or lower than you. You look at them as either those who have received the same things that you've received by grace or people who could. That's it. And so when Paul completes this chapter, and the way that Paul wrote his letters were in two halves. The first half is the theology. The second half is the kind of the practice. And so at the end of the theology section, this is what, this is what Paul says. This is in verse 28. Well, I'll read from verse 26. You are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. In other words, there is somebody else's identity that defines you now. You've adopted a new identity and it's brought about a transformation. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This congregation is a congregation where despite your color, your class, your culture, or your convictions, you're all equal here. Everyone's equal here. I mean, I'm a bit better than most of you. <laughs> all of us are equal here. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And that means when we consider things that would divide us, we, we quickly default to the things that unite us. 
When we, when we consider the things that would separate us, we quickly return to the things that hold us together. And what holds us together? Our common need of the grace of God. What holds us together? Our common faith in the Lord Jesus. What holds us together? Our common reception of the Spirit of God who's made us new and give us a new life. You may have different convictions to the people around you. I have. I mean, I'm kind of conservative and have libertarian tendencies. Yeah. Some of you are like that and some of you aren't like that. Some of you think it's really, really important that people wear masks. And others think it's really important that you don't. Some of you think it's really important that you get vaccinated. Others think that it's not. Here's the thing. Being one in Christ Jesus is more important than all of that. It has to be. And that means that as this kind of weird, odd, English, conservative libertarian, I really want to hear from other people who are not like me because I know I need to learn. I know I need to be shaped and changed by the different views of people around me. I know that I need to be, I need to be molded into a better version of what I am right now and it, it requires people like you to help me do that. And we're not going to do it through critique and jealousy, envy and discord. We're going to do it through civility and kindness and generosity and compassionate conversation. And what about if other people aren't civil? And what about if other people aren't generous? Well, okay then, fair enough. You just go after them. You can hate them then. That's what the Bible says, doesn't it? You see, people are either in one category or another. Either they're completely equal with you because they're followers of Jesus. Or they're equal with you because they could be followers of Jesus. There are two categories, but everyone's equal. Because Jesus died for everyone. And if he died for everyone, that means everyone's equal. And if he gives grace to all those who believe, then everyone's equal. And if he gives his spirit to all those who believe, then everyone's equal. And if everyone's equal, we have to put down our weapons and stop fighting one another. And learn what it means to receive grace, to be with one another and to love one another and to embrace one another and to learn from one another and then choose not to imitate if that's the right thing. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. What else does the story tell us? As we rapidly come towards our conclusion, the runway's in sight. They've turned the lights on. Traffic controller speaking to me right now. What else do we need to learn from this passage? Well, what we learn is that when Paul and Barnabas had this rejection, it didn't stop God. Because, <laughs> and I love this. I mean, just listen to this. This is awesome. Verse 49. All of that stuff happens. They get other people to fight against them and there's all kinds of biting and horridness. Verse 49. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. <laughs> You've got to love it, haven't you? There's all of this rejection and there's all of this abuse and there's all of this jealousy and there's all of this discord, but the word of the Lord continues to spread. 
Because there are some people who recognize that grace is what they need and faith in the grace of Jesus is all that they need to offer and they receive the Spirit with joy and in receiving the Spirit with joy they share the message with another and so the Word of God spreads. Of course it does. It's good news. It's not the bad news that you find so often on the social media platforms. It's not the bad news that you hear about when you turn the television on and read the, and watch the, the news. It's good news. And it transforms your life. And you share that transformation with others. And this is what Paul does. He takes a leaf out of... The words of Jesus and my good friend Taylor Swift. And they just shake it off. So what are you supposed to do if people don't like you? Just shake it off. What are you supposed to do if people reject you? Just shake it off. What are you supposed to do if people lie about you, abuse you, persecute you? Shake it off. You don't want that attaching itself to you you wouldn't want to carry that with you that'll become burdensome just shake it off and when you do that you demonstrate that all of that stuff is not significant because your significance is based on your security and your security is based on him and not you isn't that marvelous isn't that marvelous your significance is based on your security and your security is based on him and not you. Turn to your neighbor and say, your security is based on him and not you. Go, do, go, 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 go. Say it right now, go on. And the final thing that happens... And the final thing that happens to the disciples and to Paul and Barnabas is that their life demonstrates a transformation that no one living in the dogmas of religion and in the vicissitudes of social media toxins can ever know because they're filled with joy. And the Holy Spirit. They're filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. And Paul in Galatians again explains how that's possible. He says in, in Galatians 5.16 he says you need to walk with the Spirit. And when you walk with the Spirit, the Spirit will cause His presence to manifest itself in you. And His presence manifesting in you is called His fruit. It's like he offers you a child and you give birth to the child of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God manifests himself in you and through you. And his identity are, are things like love and joy and gentleness and peace and kindness and self-control. And so the Spirit of God, who you can't ever twist his arm so that he comes and lives within you. That's a gift that is given to each and all who believe without condition, without prejudice. And his presence manifest within us is the presence of joy. So if you want to be joyful today, you're not going to get joyful by doing something that kind of makes you happy because that'll just be fleeting and short-lived. If you want to be joyful, deep wells of joy, then ask the Holy Spirit to be released within you. Just ask the Holy Spirit to be released within you because it's his identity. He is joy. He is joy. And so you're filled with him and you're filled with joy. You want more love? Well, be filled with him and you'll have more love. You want more kindness? Be filled with him and you'll be kinder. It's his identity. Because it's not down to our effort. It's down to his grace. And if that's not good news, I honestly have no idea how we would define it.
So what of us today? Do you need to run from some toxic things that people have said? That have attached themselves to you and somehow have made you feel as cursed as the words were intended to make you feel? Do you feel burdened today by the words of others spoken a long time ago, parents, authority figures, who've told you what you can and can't do, what you will and won't achieve? Are you hamstrung today by the frame of reference that someone else has placed upon you? Today, is it freedom from all of those things that you look for? Or today, is it that you need to abstract yourself, remove yourself from that toxic world of words and say, Lord, I don't want to be involved in that anymore. I don't want to have these biting arguments with my family, with my friends, with all of the other people. I don't want to be involved in it anymore. I'm done with it. Or is it today that you just want your morning turned to dancing and your sadness turned to joy? Well, my advice would be, let him do it. Let him do it. And the way that God gave us our body is so that with our body we can say the things that we find difficult to articulate with our words. There are very few people who can articulate to God what we really want to say to him. But we can use our body and say, yeah, all of that, I, I want that, Lord. I know I can't do it myself. So if that's you today, then why don't you come? The worship team are coming. Why don't you come? Others will pray with you. We'll be glad to pray for you about joy. And we'll be glad to pray for you about dancing instead of mourning. We'll be glad to pray for you to break the curse of words that have been spoken over you by authority figures in the past. We'll be glad to see this as a day of freedom and of liberation from old religious habits and patterns of the past. If that's you, then you come. Let's stand together. Now, one of the things that will stop you from coming today to have other people pray for you are the words that tell you, don't embarrass yourself. Don't look foolish. Don't look needy in the presence of other people who look down on you. In the name of Jesus, I silence those words. I break, I break the yokes that you carry today in the name of Jesus. And I speak liberty over you. So you come. You come. As the team play and sing, come and join us at the front as we pray.